listeners. We are so, so, so glad to be back in your earbuds with the first episode of season three. And the first guest of season three is a dream come true for us at the Taproot. We're speaking to Baranda Montgomery. This season, we are busting myths. And today's myth is that mentoring is a one-way street. We talk about a cyanobacterium that changes shape in response to stress and how mentors and trainees also need to change in response to their mutual needs during a research project. So with that, let's get on to the episode. All right, welcome to The Taproot. Today's guest is Baranda Montgomery, Michigan State University Foundation Professor in a couple of departments, uh, Biochemistry and Molecular Biology and in Microbiology and Molecular Genetics. Uh, Baranda is also the Assistant Provost for Faculty Development Research at Michigan State. So a little bit about Baranda's background. She did her PhD at UC Davis and was an NSF-funded postdoctoral fellow at Indiana University. Broadly speaking, her laboratory is interested in the ways in which photosynthetic organisms respond to light and nutrient availability, but we'll talk more about that um, in a minute. She's also very active in the area of scholarship, mentoring, especially with issues related to mentoring diverse students, and has published broadly in the area of faculty development. She's received far too many awards to list here. But not far too many awards. (laughs) Definitely not too many awards, too many to list here. She was recently elected a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology, and I thought that the title of her talk is such a great summary of, well, a couple things, her ability to make fantastic plant-related puns, her, (laughs) her amazing research, and then the way in which she has incorporated her work on improving mentoring and how we handle ourselves as faculty members. So the title is Cultivating a Career from Seeds of Inspiration to a Harvest of Discovery, Mentoring, and Transformation. And that, to me, is really is Baranda in a nutshell. So welcome to the Taproot, Baranda. Thank you. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys today. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And the paper that we're going to be talking about today is a recent paper published in MSphere, which is the sound science journal for the microbiology people, I believe. And the title, uh, it's by Ronke et al. And the title is, well, let's see if we can get this right. RCAE, Dependent Regulation of Carboxysome Structural Proteins, has a central role in environmental determination of carboxysome morphology and abundance in Fremiella Diplosiphon? Good job. Thank you. (laughs) So, Brana, can you give us a short introduction to the paper before we get started? Sure. So, this work really grew out of a long-standing project in the lab to understand how this organism from yellow diplosiphon tunes its photosynthetic pigments to the external light cues. And so, it's been known for a long time that it tunes its ability to absorb light um, in its photosynthetic pigments to the prevalent light in the environment. And so this makes sense to us that an organism would match its ability to absorb light for photosynthesis to available light to use light energy for uh, production of energy. Um, We learned a number of years ago that in addition to tuning the pigmentation, the organism also tunes its cellular morphology. And we were very interested in 
how and why an organism would tune its morphology to external light cues. And we were able to show that this is really related to its positioning itself in the water column, also for maximizing light absorption for photosynthesis while limiting light-associated damage like phototoxicity. And so for years, we have been studying that using different microscopy analyses. And in one particular analysis, we were wanting to look at what the array of the thylakoid membranes were using uh, TEM, transmission electron microscopy. And in those studies, we noticed that one of the subcellular structures in the cyanobacterium, uh, really a bacterial organelle known as a carboxysome, had a different morphology in a mutant that couldn't respond to external light compared to wild type. And so these studies really grew out of those TEM analysis and asking whether there had been any previous association of external environmental cues with changing this uh, bacterial organelle, which is known as the carboxysome. And so a carboxysome in cyanobacteria is really a part carbon concentrating mechanism in this organism. And so what we notice is that in a strain that had a mutation in a photoreceptor that no longer allows the organism to respond to external light, there was a disruption in the size and the number of carboxysomes. And so this suggested to us that the organism was not only tuning photosynthetic pigmentation and morphology, but also this structure um, that's a central part of carbon uh, concentration mechanism, which was really interesting because, as I said, there had been no previous kind of connection with environmental cues. And so then we had uh, a photoreceptor and a signal transduction pathway that we could probe to see how and why they were regulating this morphology of organelle. Thank you. I, so these, these bacteria, they have a cell wall. Yes, they do. So yes. how are they changing shape? Well, it was interesting because when we first saw that they were, it was a paper published in 1973 that shows some microscopy that the shape was changing. And when I saw this, I initially thought about plants because my first work in photobiology has always been with plants. And when you think about the hypocotyl in dark-grown versus light-grown tissues, a lot, of, a lot of the difference in terms of the length of the hypocotyl, which is longer in the dark and shorter in light, is because the morphology of the cells has changed. And so for me, it wasn't uh, abnormal that you would have light-dependent control of cell shape in a way or cell elongation. Um, and as in plants, it involves um, some actin and other uh, components. In bacteria, what we see is that they're changing their cell shape by controlling regulation of what are known as morphogenes. Um, and these are genes that have been previously associated with the control of cell shape. And one of them is a bacterial actin um, that's involved in MREB. MREB, yes, is involved yeah. in uh, the rod shape cell. And so what we know is that in the water column, these organisms can either be close to the surface yeah. or lower in the water column. And lower mm -hmm. in the water column where there's very dim light, the cells are elongated. And so part of the regulation, we think, is about having a larger cell capacity that supports the cells having more thylakoid membranes. So, Baranda, one of the things that's so cool about this paper to me is like all the, the different shape organelles and how those affect what's actually happening with photosynthesis. And it occurs to me, we talk a lot about all these high throughput omics technologies and shape is still something that we don't think about being able to do at high throughput. Just to be quite honest, shape was not something I had an interest in based on my own uh, prior experiences. But my first graduate student was very interested in a paper from 1973 that had looked at shape and wanted to do microscopy and convinced me to go into microscopy. 
And then later, some graduate students wanted to look at the inside of the cells to see what was going on with the thylakoid membrane. And because we have great facilities on campus, one of them convinced me that we should go into looking at some TEM analysis. And then in terms of high throughput, we actually have moved more recently into doing some mutant screens for the shape of the cyanobacteria that's been driven by an undergraduate, noticing that when we centrifuge the cells, there's a difference in the pelleting. So it's been really, it's been, been really cool for me to really listen to the people that I'm mentoring in terms of the graduate students and undergraduates and try to really, both in supporting their investigations in terms of where they want to go, but also for me to say, where would that take us if we actually follow through on some of those things? So between the students and undergraduates, both graduates and undergraduates, some of these directions emerge and have really changed the direction of the lab and have us viewed as pseudo-cell biologists. <laughs> That's interesting. It doesn't really, that's like more of a communal approach than the way we sort of typically think of the lab head as sort of running the show and telling people what to do. And then there's some independence around like, how are you going to actually execute that question? Absolutely. And I think for me, that's been one of the fun parts of mentoring is that, you know, in our current climate, it's easy to get caught up in following the questions that lead to the next grant. But part of my interest in mentoring has always been in developing the people who are working with me, my junior colleagues, in terms of their curiosity, their scientific interest. And so where it's been possible, I really try to listen in to the things that interest them and ask how can we incorporate that into the overall direction of the lab. And it's really changed the course of my own career. I really honestly would not probably be doing this level of looking at cell shape and cell biology without the students first coming with that interest and looking into the older literature and asking, can we try this? Especially with the way things are going now, where we have to be, you know, chasing the next financial backing for our for our labs and the people in our labs, which is critical. But so many of us got into this completely based on our interest in science and curiosity. And I fight really hard to try to maintain a place in the lab where we can still cultivate that, even within the, the kind of reality of the current climate, climate funding. It's a balancing act. How do you decide when some students say, yeah, I know you asked me to do RT-PCR and these three genes, but what I really want to do is look at these cells by EM. I have really tried to use each of those instances when they arise as an opportunity for professional development about how you develop a research portfolio within the confines of the context you're in, but also cultivating your own personal interests. And so we often have a conversation that if you're interested in a particular topic, you've got to convince me, first of all, that we need to try it out a little bit. And that means pretty much what we have to do with a grant proposal, right? We have to come with some data, some prior reports or something that shows why this is a reasonable question to pursue. We then have a discussion about what techniques we would need to do that and if it's feasible for us to try to do it in our own hands or if this is a time where we need to collaborate. And occasionally we get to the point where it's not the right experiment for us to do. But I do think even the process of discussing it, whether we ultimately end up at doing it or not, is also an opportunity for professional development about how you consider ideas, vet them, and either move forward or pass. 
mean, I think it's easy to get caught up in the PI of doing all the things you need to do for the next external evaluation or next milestone, which is a real practicality, and we have to be concerned about that. But I try as hard as possible to also keep in a context that each of these are opportunities for me to advance my career as I'm actively trying to make sure that the person who is working with me on the project is reciprocally being advanced in whatever direction they see that they want to go. I often see myself as a mentor first. Science is one way for me to carry out that mentor. Were you always like that, even as a grad student or a postdoc? I think I wasn't as aware of it at the postdoc and late graduate student level. I became very much aware of it when I started my lab. Although I recently had a conversation with my PhD advisor and he said, no, you always had like four or five undergrads and we spent as much time talking about how I was going to manage my team of undergrads as we did about the trajectory of my research. At that time, I wasn't as intentional about it. But when I started my lab and had an empty space, you know, we have to fill it up with equipment and ideas and people. The equipment and ideas were an easier thing for me to move forward on. And as I was sitting thinking about the first hires, I did have a time where I was reflecting on what kind of mentor I wanted to be. And I think so frequently we default to mentoring people in the ways that we've been mentored. And I had been mentored well. It wasn't that I had any bad experiences, but I was really wondering, you know, is that going to work best for the people I may recruit if they're different kinds of people than I am? So I really did approach the way I was going to mentor in my lab, the way we approach a new research experiment, where when we have the question about any particular thing, we generally go and ask what's been done before what good literature is out there. So I went, tried to do a literature search to see how people were deciding about the venturing philosophy for their lab. And being a scientist, I went to PubMed and didn't find a lot of articles there, but I did find a lot of work that had been done in education and sociology and other places. So I just started to reach out to people and talk and come up with a philosophy of mentoring, how I was going to mentor to try to be intentional about it. So as I run my lab, I have been very intentional, embedded in evidence, asking lots of questions. And quite frankly, also my mentoring has been a lot driven about by how I think about my research in that all the research we do with cyanobacteria that I described for this one paper, but the work that we also do in plants is about asking questions about the interface between individuals and environment and how environments impact the potential for success for individuals. And so Really, I think about mentoring a lot in the ways I think about how plants respond to their environment as well. So it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) I guess there's some kinds of experiments you can't do your students, like cold nutrition or something. Certainly not. And I think that the, the one thing you can't, yeah, you can't withhold nutrition. The other thing that I have realized that is very different is that, you know, once you're used to plants or you're used to cyanobacteria, their, their signs responding to the environment are very obvious to the eye. And that's not always the case with individuals. They can be responding to the environment, having successes or struggles, and it's not always obvious. So that's one thing that I've had to really be thinking about in a different context of how we are able to stay in communication. And this is actually related to listening to them in terms of the research ideas that they want to progress. The real trust that I build with people by listening to their research ideas and supporting them in those also opens them up to talk to me about career ideas and other things. So I think that they all work well together in terms of trying to promote and advance the whole person, the whole science. 
So I think this is as good a time as any to mention that Baranda saw this deficiency in literature about mentoring, and so she wrote a paper. And we're going to be putting a link to that in the show notes. It's called Mapping a Mentoring Roadmap and Developing a Supportive Network for Strategic Career Advancement. And that's in Sage Open Access. Um, and one of the things I think is so important about this paper is the concept of intentionality. We strive to be good mentors, and part of that is taking the time for it. But I think one of the key things that I took from this paper is how important the two-way dimension of the mentor-mentee relationship is and how much buy-in you have to get from the mentee for this to be really effective. So how do you go about determining if the person is really ready for that mentoring relationship, someone in your lab or in a more informal? You know, I think one of the things about it is that so much of it is relational. And I think that it has to be relational paired with a lot of reflection on both the part of the mentee and the mentor. And so I agree with you. There are lots of people who are great mentors, but their mentoring could be expanded to more people if they were reflecting on it and intentional. And part of that is because it's relational. So much of good mentoring does happen in just day-to-day interactions or day-to-day exchanges. But generally, if you're not reflecting on that, Often what happens is that there are some people in the group that get better mentoring than others. And so there are some tools you can use. You know, there's a lot of been a lot of conversation and focus on using individual development plans or other kinds of intentional and strategy based engagement of trying to get feedback from people. So I I have really done what I consider personalized mentoring, where I have a general approach for trying to make sure that there's a relational exchange between all the people in my lab, but that differs for certain individuals. So I have some students who we have, in addition to the kind of annual progress report that you may do for a graduate program, we'll also have a meeting semi-annually or annually, much usually much more informal over coffee or something to discuss what they're thinking about in terms of their career and what strengths they think they have and what challenges they think they have and how do we identify opportunities, whether it's attending an annual meeting that also has some professional development or career discussions or other things. Other people in the lab like to use a much more structured approach where they go through the IDP and then we have a conversation based upon the scores that they get back from that. And so for me, I think that it really does depend on the mentor, but there needs to be some kind of intentional practice where you're going to build the idea that you're going to check in with people about things apart from their data. And I think the hardest part is that they will often share things with you that are good, but getting to the point in the relationship where they also share challenges, whether that's I'm not sure what I want to do with my career, or I'm thinking about doing something in terms of a career that may be completely outside the box of what they think you'll support. And part of one of the most powerful things I found in terms of getting to the place where people will report is that I have to spend equal time recognizing their strengths as I do their weaknesses. And I think in science and in life in general, it's easy for mentors to identify where things aren't going well, where you're not getting data as fast as we might hope, where things are not moving towards manuscripts as quickly. But when you do something really well, we often note it, but don't share it. And so I'm very intentional about sharing both of those. And the more you share strengths, it opens people up to share where they need help. And so it really is being intentional about the relationship that moves towards that. And for me, it happens a lot of times 
in different ways, but it can happen through very recognized ways, such as using IDPs or the annual review progress report uh, very intentionally. Yeah, the, the IDP is sort of the main tool I know about for most of this. Like you said, how to give people feedback outside of data. And you're right that we're always aware of places for growth and very honest about mm-hmm. it. But on the on the positive side, like some of them are very hesitant to write in, like, I gave a great talk or I was really stubborn and persistent. That's a, I guess that's the reflection that that they need more than, yeah, you're right. You're not being very productive. <laughs> they need right. And I think they need it for two reasons. I think one is that you need to be aware of your strengths because that's where you get motivation when you do things well. But once you're aware of them, you're also able to evoke them more broadly. And most of us have success in our careers where we're able to really fully engage our unique strengths. And so if you're not aware of them, you can't engage them. And that's one of the most important reasons to point those out. But I think also it's critical that they know that we see both their strengths and weaknesses. When you need to engage with them around a weakness, they can trust you more because they recognize that you don't think they're a person not capable of anything. So you're, the way we're talking about this now is sort of info flowing really from the PI to the student. But you earlier, you were describing a way in which sort of info and direction was flowing in the other way. Yeah. Are you coming to some sort of understanding that mentoring? So one thing I always hate is when my uh, trainees call me their boss. Yes. I, yeah. I feel like that really is like exactly not <laughs> the relationship that I want. And I feel like you have a, a way of sort of re-envisioning what it means to be a mentor. Yeah, I think that too frequently we think of mentoring as a teaching relationship where the mentor is teaching the mentee what they need to advance, teaching the mentee what they need to have a successful career. And I have instead envisioned and often talk about mentoring as a collaborative learning relationship. And most of us mentor because we're getting something out of it. And even if it is simply contributing to advancing someone else, we have to learn about that person to be able to do that. So I really do think that where we don't embrace mentoring as a collaborative learning relationship or exchange, that the mentee is getting something, but the mentor is missing an opportunity. And I think that one of the most critical things that can emerge from what I think of as these kind of intergenerational mentoring relationships is that my We all know that we get at the point in our careers where our mentees, our students, our postdocs understand and have used methods that we've never used. And so for me, I have fully embraced the idea that this is a collaborative learning and that my full potential as a scientist, my full potential in terms of the types of experiments that I can do are interdependent on my group. It's not about me leading them to this, you know, golden promised land, but it really is an (laughs) interdependent relationship where I am enriched and my possibilities are expanded when I open myself up to that possibility. So I appreciate that you don't like being called a boss, but many of these relationships do have actual supervision responsibilities in them. And so you can't get away from that completely. Yes. I think that, to your point, I fully acknowledge that whether you want to be boss or not, they're power differentials. And whether you, if you don't engage those, you're not uh, fully positioning yourself to have the best impact. So I do think there's still a significant space where even with 
where you're not talking about traditional trainees, there's room to ask how can this relationship serve us both very well in terms of productivity, but also aligning with our personal motivations and aspirations. So one of my past graduate students came into the lab saying, I want to be, I want to work in science communication. That's my passion. I want to get a PhD, I think, but academics is not for me. And that was fine because I knew what to expect. And we, in the process of getting him ready for that job, I got super invested and involved in science communication. So there's sort of one of those examples of I taught him and he taught me. And that, that was a great exchange. But there are lots of other cases where it's not so easy. Yeah, I think that, you know, to your point, I think it's often taken that because I, I am so involved in mentoring and writing about it, that I've got it all figured out. And mentoring is hard. <laughs> mentoring is hard but You've work. written a paper about it. You must know everything. Yes. No, mentoring, it's hard work because it's, it's not like, you know, QRT or something where you get a protocol and you know that pretty much it works. And you can tweak the protocol to get it to work better, or you can mess it up. But it's, it's mentoring is not like that. It really is a day-to-day thing where the relationship may be on a great path one day and it changes the next day. So it is this constant, you know, reformulation of how we, we exchange information and move forward. But to your point, I think that this goes back to one of the reasons I wrote the paper about mentoring networks is that I think that at some point there has to be a conversation about whether when someone has completely different goals, I mean, completely different ideas, there has to be a discussion about whether there's enough of an overlap that we can move toward mutually agreed goals in terms of output, in terms of each of us advancing and learning, or whether there's not. And in cases where there is enough of an overlap in the ideals, but the mentor doesn't have all the expertise, that's when it becomes critical to say, we've got to make sure that you have the right mentoring network. So that we can focus on the things that we know are mutually agreeable between us, but those areas where you're going to need additional input, I can't provide those, but I can provide you a framework to think about what that mentoring network would look like, and then we can try to work together to see that you have it. And I think that one of the difficult parts about mentoring is that often we feel when we have to separate a relationship that somehow someone has failed. I'm not a good mentor. Something is wrong with the person who's trying to be mentored. And I think that's where we have to have a different conversation that sometimes I'm just not the right person. We can have the conversation about what it is you want to accomplish. I can affirm that that's what you want to accomplish, even as I say that you probably need to identify a different person or a different network to help you move forward. But I think that's where mentoring is difficult because too frequently when things work well, We celebrate our great mentorship and our great aptitude for mentoring. And when things don't go well, it feels like a failure. And I think that we have to move away from that and recognize that it's really about making sure that the person gets what they need, whether it's from you or elsewhere. I think it's a really hard balance to strike between figuring out that something is not working and that you have to fix it and realizing that You've moved past that, and now it's time to move on and, and separate and go in a different direction. It's because there's a lot of guilt involved when you, if you realize that you made a mistake previously, and you have to find a way to separate your wanting to fix something and feeling guilty about mistakes you may have made and actually deciding that this was a mistake because there's a mismatch between the mentee and the mentor. 
Well, and that's where I think we also need a change in the culture that frequently when we're in those spaces where mentoring is not going well, we won't openly talk about it because we do take this personally, whether we mentor people well and they're successful or not. And I've had conversations recently about that, you know, that goes back to something that I, I love about humans and plants is that if we don't have a green thumb and can't, can't take care of a plant, well, we just say it. I don't have good caretaking skills and I need some help. But we don't have that same openness a lot of times in mentoring. And so we do kind of sit with feeling that we failed in helping to take care of this person and make sure that they can move forward without connecting ourselves to resources to help us improve and or saying it's not me and it's not you. It's just that we don't work together to propel you forward. But those are really difficult places because I think we, so many of us do, our identity is tied up in how well we can support the people who have committed part of their careers to our care. So you talk, talking about tools, I mean, I think that's definitely a place where I am a little empty brained about, we definitely do IDPs. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are some other ways to develop more of a mentoring and less of a boss relationship with the trainees in your lab? I think there, you know, there are some really good tools. There's, there's one set of resources that has emerged from a group at University of Wisconsin-Madison that started in a curriculum called Entry Mentoring that has been a part of this recent NIH-funded National Research Mentoring Network. And they have a set of resources that really help drive discussions around setting expectations. So setting expectations and having conversations about that is a part of an IDP, but I think the ways in which you do that and the times in which you do it across a career can really impact how mentoring is progressing. And there are other modules that they have around culturally competent mentoring, you know, because sometimes you're mentoring across gender divides or racial and ethnic minority divides. And those are issues that certainly can impact how you have exchanges as well. So they have an entire curriculum. And a lot of campuses have started having mentor training and other spaces where mentors can get together and exchange ideas. Yeah, actually, that brings up a question I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about is this idea of mentoring across cultural and community divides. Obviously, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of evidence that it's really important to have, to know that there are people out there who are like you and are in these fields, and and yet we have ridiculously underrepresented groups that, you know, for reasons due to bias and Mm -hmm. historical, cultural, uh, and societal problems, that we don't have a great pool of, of available role models. So how do you think we should be balancing trying to find the right mentors on a sort of a skills and interest match versus some of these sort of more cultural and societal issues? You know, I think ideally we have to do them all. But I think with the, in the reality of the current context where the faculty rank are much more, much less diverse than the student ranks. It, is, it will take a while for us to have like a physical role model in most spaces. And so the question becomes, how do we keep working towards that, even as we change the ways in which we operate in our current environment? And I think a lot of times when we engage these issues, it feels very difficult. And so we often don't address them head on. But there are lots of simple things to do. I mean, I think a lot of the work that's come out of psychology, sociology, and other places like the work by Claude Dill on stereotype threats and the impact of role modeling that simply sometimes to see someone or to hear that there was a paper by someone has impact in that moment, even if there's not physically a faculty person in a particular unit that represents 
um, demographic group. I do think that representation matters so deeply. I can't tell you the number of times that I've given a talk at one of the national meetings that there are students of color or women who come up and say, it was so nice to see you on the stage. They don't talk anything about science that I talked about. And so I think that where we are in places to really make sure that there's representation, and sometimes it's as simple as when you're doing a journal club and you have a paper that's by a woman or racial ethnic minority group to put the title of the paper and a picture up. You don't even have to say anything, but over time, what that does is show the people who are in the journal club that papers come from all kinds of people, not just the ones that we currently are thinking. Um, you know, if you ask someone, they will often name a white male scientist. And so I think that there are both always that we can start to say and show representation, even as we tackle the harder work. And I mention that because so frequently when we think about this, it just seems like an issue we've been working on for years. We're making slow progress, but there are a lot of things we can do on a day-to-day basis that also start to turn the tide. And one of them is to simply quit ignoring it. Too frequently, we try to engage in what we call colorblind ways, where we never acknowledge the identities of our students, our colleagues, And we think that that's helpful. And what we found is that that is not helpful. A colorblind is not anti-racist. And so I think we actually have to start to have conversations about this. We had a few years ago, the Minority Affairs Committee at the American Society for Plant Biology, we wrote a article in the newsletter about we have to start having conversations about race and gender and identity and not shy away from it. I mean, do you have advice for for young, young men, you know, young people who are just starting out and they're like, oh, I don't know. I've never been trained to do any of this. I don't know how to manage or mentor people. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we have to recognize is that we are managing or mentoring people, whether we're being intentional about it or not. And so where it feels overwhelming, I think that that's a true and honest feeling. It is overwhelming. But I think that's where it becomes important that mentors themselves build their own network of support. Just just uh, earlier this week, I was having a conversation with a circle of mentors about some challenging um, issues we're having with some of our, you know, as we try to mentor. And so I think that we also have to realize that even though our labs are set up in ways that it feels like we're the sole PI managing a group, and that's true, that we also have to build out networks for ourselves to help in those moments where it feels overwhelming and it feels challenging and you don't know what to do. And that's something that I think, you know, units and disciplinary societies and others can help with so that it doesn't also then feel like you have one additional thing you have to do, which is building your own network. It's just have conversation. So one of the things we do here, we have a a group across three or four departments here at my institution where the pre-tenure professors have lunch. And in those lunches, a lot of times they're very informal and they're talking about grants, but some months they talk about mentoring and the, you know, the wins and the losses. And I think it's important that it doesn't feel like you have to attack it alone. So, Baranda, it has absolutely been an honor to have you here on the Taproot. And really thank you for helping us bust the myth that mentoring is really a one-way transference of information and guidance. So if people wanted to contact you or follow you, how would they go about doing that? Well, I'm generally on Twitter talking about plants and mentoring very frequently um, at Baranda M. Great. And Ivan, how can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Baxter Twee. That's Baxter T-W-I. And you can find me on Twitter also at at E Haswell. So thanks, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Baranda. Thank you. Thanks, Baranda.
The Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plantae website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell, and produced by Mary Williams and Melanie Binder. We get editing help from ASPB Conviron scholar Juniper Kiss, and social media and blog post writing help from ASPB intern Katie Rogers. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week.